0: Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. This week, we'll sit down with the inimitable Dolly Parton. She recently visited West Virginia to celebrate her Imagination Library, which sends books to young children.
1: Children, really, their little minds are open to learning things, and I think if we can get books in their hands, teach them to read in their most impressionable years, I think that's always a wonderful thing.
0: We'll also head to Kingsport, Tennessee, where Jerry Machin makes art from old carpets. When he first started, his wife Linda wasn't impressed.
2: I walk in from work, and my whole kitchen floor is covered with pieces, and he's gonna put a picture together. And I'm like, is it gonna be done before I have to start
0: supper? And it used to be that every grocery store had a trained butcher behind the counter. But that's not the case so much today. So the owner of a Charleston abattoir had an idea. Let's start from scratch with a real apprentice program. Let's teach people from the ground up. You'll hear these stories and more this week Inside Appalachia. Welcome Inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. The last two years have shown how fragile our food supply chain can be. Breakdowns at processing plants and distribution bottlenecks have meant more products missing from grocery store shelves. That's why Buzz Food Service in Charleston is trying to build a new model for locally raised meat. But it needs butchers to make that plan work. And butchers can be scarce. So Buzz came up with an old-fashioned solution, an apprenticeship program. Folkways reporter Zach Harold has the story.
3: Bo Bellamy gets to Buzz Food Service at 7 a.m., a full hour before the day's meat cutting begins. Buzz sells fresh meat and seafood to restaurants, resorts, and other commercial customers in seven Appalachian states, all from a headquarters just outside Charleston. But before any of that can happen, the butcher shop has to pass a daily inspection by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That's why Bo's here, getting things ready.
4: They're not looking for, like, chunks of meat. They're looking for tiny, tiny little specks. And if they find something like that, they either, A, well, you have to fix it or you know, they could shut you down altogether.
3: Sure enough, he spots a tiny speck of meat, smaller than the size of a match head, wedged between two tables.
5: See, that little spot right there.
3: He takes a cloth and cleans it off.
4: That's enough to get you in trouble with the USCA.
3: Bo clearly knows his way around this meat shop, but he's only been doing this for about a year. He spent the previous 10 years as a paramedic riding around on ambulances, but then the pandemic hit. Bo and his wife had a premature newborn baby with breathing troubles. He didn't want to risk bringing anything home, so he quit. He delivered bread for a while, worked for a friend's asphalt company, and then he saw a billboard for a brand new paid apprentice program at Buzz. See, Buzz was expanding. Just down the street from the meat shop, the company built Appalachian Abattoir. Abattoir is French for slaughterhouse, where Buzz processes locally raised cows and pigs. Most of the time, animals raised in Appalachia get shipped off to the Midwest, where they're fattened up, slaughtered, processed, and butchered. The meat then makes the whole trip in reverse, traveling thousands of miles to end up in your grocery store. Buzz President Dickens & Gould said the company built its abattoir to keep at least some of that meat right here at home. Essentially, four companies in the Midwest produce 85% of the beef and pork that we consume in this country. Four companies. We put ourselves now in a position to essentially supply ourselves. Buzz staffed the new venture with employees from its existing butcher shop. But that meant it needed somebody to take their place, and experienced meat cutters aren't exactly in ready supply. And I had many people say to me, you know, that sounds like a great plan, but where are you going to find people to do that kind of work? And the best idea we came up with and that we kept coming back to was, let's start from scratch with a real apprentice program. Let's teach people from the ground up. Previously, Buzz trained meat cutters one-on-one. New hires learned at the elbow of a more experienced butcher. But with so many newbies coming all at once, the company needed to formalize the process. When Bo and four other apprentices started work at Buzz in September 2021, they began an intensive curriculum that covered every aspect of the meat business. Not just cutting the meat, but also the economics of it. Apprentices learn about the biology of cattle. They've taken field trips to other processing facilities. They get the chance to work shifts at General Steak and Seafood, Buzz's retail operation in downtown Charleston. And it worked. Angela Gould, the company's chief operations officer, says this approach has helped apprentices become much more proficient, much faster.
2: Because in
6: the past, it would take about a year and a half for a new staff person to really be able to work completely independently and really cut some of, the more, some of the higher end or more expensive cuts that we process here. And now we've found that that, with this group, is reduced down to about six months.
3: There's no better example of this than our friend Bo. He's become a maestro of the meat shop's bandsaw, rocking the machines, sliding table back and forth, turning beef short loin into identical looking New York strips. He's even training students of his own. After a second class of six apprentices started in January
4: 2022. What you're doing is you're setting it up to to look good as a. You know, it's two years as a in you know, a paramedic before they allow you to
7: get on an ambulance. So, to be able to walk in the first day and start to learn, and then after five months to be able to teach somebody else is, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a, certainly a credit to the program. But Bo's
3: education is only about halfway done. The whole apprenticeship program takes two years to complete. At the end, he'll hold a certificate recognized by the U.S. Department of Labor. And from there, he can pretty much write his own ticket. Have you noticed that there aren't as many butchers in grocery stores anymore? Well, Buzz President Dickinson Gould says that's not because it isn't profitable. Grocery stores just can't find anybody qualified to do the job. The grocery stores are essentially realizing where's the next generation of people qualified to do this work. They, they don't exist, nor is there a school you can send people to for that kind of training. It's exactly the kind of training that we're building here. For his part, Bo says he's going to stick around Buzz for a while. But even if he were to leave and go to work for a grocery store or maybe start a butcher shop of his own, it would still serve Buzz's overall goal to make the supply chains that we all depend on a whole lot shorter. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Zach Harold in Charleston, West Virginia.
8: Hey call me the man You
9: ought to see me eat I'm the man You ought
1: to see me eat
0: That story comes to us from our Folkways Reporting Project, which covers arts and culture in Appalachia. Zach also produced a short video documentary about the Butcher Apprenticeship program. Check it out on our website wvpublic.org. In Berea, Kentucky, a group of teens is participating in a different kind of apprenticeship program. They're learning the ancient craft of embroidery and how it's been used for decades to empower women. Weku's Sherry Lawson spent time at the School of Needlework for Disobedient Women and has this report.
10: Sitting on gold, purple, and red velvet antique couches in a venue that feels like a large but cozy living room, a group of teenagers is hovering over pieces of fabric. They're having sessions on the how-tos of embroidery. Fifteen-year-old Arabella Huff says she heard about the workshop for kids her age when she saw a flyer on Facebook. It said they discuss like feminist and political topics while you stitch, and I was like, okay. I can get behind that. Pushing her wavy brown shoulder-length hair behind her ears, Huff calls her reaction to the name of the summer workshop, the School of Needlework for Disobedient Women.
6: That made it more appealing to me because I have some very feminist ideals. So I was like, okay, that's my people.
10: (laughs) Huff says she gets to go just about every day, all day, for two weeks. There are 12 teens all together, and they talk about everything from media literacy to identity to the rollback of Roe v. Wade. On this day, facilitator Cecilia Roden is showing a few girls how to re-thread a needle. (laughs) Go ahead and pull your needle off. Just take the needle off the thread. Roden is one of the creators of the workshop. It's funded in part by an Art Meets Activism grant from the Kentucky Foundation for Women. Roden says there was a time when needlework was used as a tool to prepare girls for marriage. But, she says, those skills were eventually used as a form of activism to document injustices. They were also used to stitch things like suffrage banners advocating for the right to vote. Roden says the School of Needlework for Disobedient Women is a nod to all those women and the evolution of their work. They took that skill that they were taught to help marry them off and they used it to just, like, scream, I'm not happy and I'm doing something about it. Kiana Majub, the workshop's other co-founder, says she and Roden are both teaching artists. Majub says they're guiding teens to learn about self-expression using embroidery, and there's something else they're learning here mostly just learning how to speak their minds and not be afraid to do it here. Hey, Kiana. Maju walks over to a table where four girls are embroidering and chatting. Addison Shepherd is stitching the likeness of a woman's body. The 14-year-old points out the large thighs and stretch marks, saying the body reflects how she looks. I feel like it would be an empowering move if I just embroider a body because it reminds me of how everyone is beautiful in their own way. Ajube likes Shepard's piece of work. I think it looks really cool. It added a really cool texture. Across the room, Cadence Perman sits to one side of a gold velvet couch and works on a square of fabric pulled taut with an embroidery hoop. Herman identifies as agender. The 15-year-old is new to needlework, but carefully stitches a design with a message. It says, respect
2: my existence or expect my resistance, and then I made a uterus
10: with my ovaries as the lesbian and non-binary flags. The free two-week workshop has received some funding and coaching from Shannon Downey, an art activist known on Instagram as Badass Cross Stitch. She says the school of needlework for disobedient women is especially important because, in her words, there's been a backslide in the rights of women and folks of marginalized genders.
11: The only way that's going to change is if we're supporting our young people and understanding that they have power and that they have autonomy
10: and that they have say. The blend of art and activism has been a highlight of the summer for most of these teens who are 13 to 16 years old. Iris Sheehan, Samantha Robinson, Jade Brewer, Alexandra Beisner, Maria Sears, and Kara Miller share some of what they'll take away from the School of Needlework for Disobedient Women.
12: I love the people here. I love the environment. It's so open. Yeah, we feel safe here. Just talking openly and not sugarcoating it, you know?
9: It's given me more confidence being here, seeing that there are women like me. With feminism, a lot of people have been embroidering things related to that. It feels relieving. It feels like this is a trust space where we can be ourselves without worrying about it.
10: The workshop is only in its second year, and co-founders Rodin and Majub say they're already working on a plan to replicate it and share it with other teaching artists so their work can do the most good for the most people. In Berea, I'm Sherry Lawson.
0: William Brewer teaches creative writing at Stanford University, but his West Virginia roots have deeply influenced his writing. He wrote a book of poetry about the opioid crisis in Appalachia called I Know Your Kind. Now he has a new novel called The Red Arrow, West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Eric Douglas spoke with Brewer about the book and growing up in the mountain state.
4: Tell me a little bit about the about the plot of the story. About the the what what's happening in in this story? Yeah,
11: so the the book begins with a narrator sitting on a train in Rome that's set to depart for the north of Italy, uh, and he's heading towards Modena, a town in the north, hoping to find a physicist that he works for as a ghostwriter. He, he's working to try to write this guy's memoir to clear a huge debt he's gotten himself into. And he got into this debt by taking a ton of money to write sort of the great West Virginia novel, which he sort of BS'd his way into and then quickly realized he had no business doing. So the book begins as the train is leaving the station and he starts reflecting on how he got himself into this position. And in the meantime, what happens is you reflect on his sort of failed career in the New York art world uh, a large sort of chemical spill disaster in in West Virginia, um, the phenomenon of psychedelic therapy in Northern California. And then lastly, some experience of sort of travel in Sicily in Italy.
4: I, I thought it was interesting you you chose a narrator, you know, so the the book is mm-hmm. in first person. It's mm-hmm. you were you are following a character um, from that character's perspective rather than a more traditional third person. Uh, for a novel. Why, why did you choose that, that perspective?
11: For this book specifically, one of its uh, concerns is how people lose sort of track of reality in their minds, that their perceptions can kind of get the better of them. And specifically in the case of of mental illness, I think the book is, is definitely interested in uh, depression Um, but even sort of a a kind of hyper-awareness and and a pressure of anxiety. And these are sort of situations of mind that I think are kind of running rampant in America at the moment. And I think the last two years of the pandemic made that sort of all the worse with people being isolated and, and strained for their jobs and just their own health. So the book is really interested in how, uh, mental illness functions in the mind. And so one of the ways to do that, to explore that in the book, is to to really sit squarely in a person's mind. Uh, but the speaker has sort of found freedom from this sort of oppressive depression that he's lived with for much of his life through uh, this thing called psychedelic therapy That's people are probably hearing about uh, left and right now. And so one of the ways to do that in the book is have this person speaking from the other side of the, the sort of burden of depression, which then allows him to reflect on his own mind from within his own mind. It sort of gives the reader the closest examination they could hope for.
4: Uh, it's interesting you chose the the chemical spill. The facts are changed, but you said it about 20 years previous to the, the actual uh, water crisis here in West Virginia. Why did you choose that as a seminal event? Um something that's really
11: amazing uh about being from West Virginia and then not living there and, and meeting other people is they really struggle to believe the number of chemical and sort of environmental disasters that have happened in the state and and those disasters happening uh you know from a relationship with industry uh people just don't believe it's possible and they say, no, that there's no way you could do that there. Or they're like, I've never heard of it, so it couldn't possibly be true. And so there's sort of two phenomenon there, which is one is the sort of scale of these events when they happen and on how often they've actually happened over the history of the state. I mean, if you look up the number of sort of water crises that have happened, it's, it's quite a long list. But at the same time, that these things could be so big and so common, and yet people never know about them. And there's something quite sort of challenging about that in my mind so the one that I fictionalize is in some ways like a a, I I cobble it together from any number of events you know a detail from this one a detail from that one Um, and the parameters you know sort of replay themselves over and over again and I'm really you know. I grew up in Morgantown, the river is sort of the central, it's the, the artery of the of the area, and it's how you sort of orient yourself. And I think that's pretty much true throughout much of the state. You know, there's almost always a river where there's where the towns are. And so when this sort of thing happens to the water and it happens right there, uh, how quickly it has the ability to impact basically everybody's lives in that town. And then how they each sort of struggle to deal with it in their own ways.
4: So what haven't we talked about?
11: You know, one of the blockbuster, I guess, topics in the book that people are probably starting to learn about is the um, the subject of psychedelic therapy, which sounds sort of wild. But if people have probably in the last couple of weeks, there was a documentary that just came out on Netflix called How to Change Your Mind, which is based off of the book by Michael Pollan, uh, and that book recounts the use of psychedelics towards um how they function for and actually function in the human mind sort of demystifying uh them as these really really dangerous drugs but also showing how they can help people that are undergoing serious suffering. Uh and I think you know something as a writer I'm always interested in is how humans uh change their minds, how they change consciousness and you know my poetry book relating to the the opiate epidemic is part of that. And I think that there, you know, if we look at something like the opiate epidemic, it doesn't suggest to me that, you know, West Virginia has a problem with a lot of people that just want to use drugs. It has a problem with, I think, a lot of pain, and it's a place that's had a lot of pain put on it. Uh, So if, you know, one drug is, is, gives people the power to sort of numb that pain, and those drugs being opiates. The alternative then is these psychedelics, which used in a therapeutic context, are being shown time and time again uh, at places like Johns Hopkins University, for example, that are running huge studies and have now opened an institute for the study of these chemicals, that they offer uh, immense potential in helping people be alleviated. From that suffering. It's something that I based in the book off my own experience. It completely changed my life. I encountered it out here in Northern California, but it's something that I believe would offer sort of immense help uh, to places like West Virginia, for example, where I think people, people want help.
0: That was author William Brewer speaking with Eric Douglas about his new novel, The Red Arrow. You can read a longer version of this interview on our website at wvpublic.org. Later in the show... We'll visit with country music icon Dolly Parton and listen to her talk about her Imagination Library program that sends books to young children.
1: I think if we can get books in their hands, teach them to read, you know, when they're young, in their most impressionable years, I think that's always a wonderful thing.
0: You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Japanese-born photographer George Massa came to Asheville, North Carolina, around 1915. At a time when Asian-born people couldn't be American citizens, Massa was hailed as the Ansel Adams of the Smokies. He documented an Appalachian transition, and he helped map the Appalachian Trail. But he's seldom remembered. A new book by author Brent Martin takes a closer look at George Massa's life and work. Anastasia Murray at Blue Ridge Public Radio has this.
13: George Massa was a Japanese immigrant who moved to western North Carolina and became one of the pivotal figures in establishing the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. However, for most of the 20th century, his contributions fell into obscurity. That's what motivated local author Brent Martin to write a book about him.
4: To explore Massa's life. Think about him as an individual in this landscape, and what a rare individual he was at the time.
13: George Massa came to Asheville from San Francisco in 1915, and found work at the newly opened Grove Park Inn. We don't know much about his time there, except for one thing:
4: he was actually accused of being a spy by Fred Loring Seely at the Grove Park Inn during World War One.
13: But Mr. Seely's accusations went nowhere. Massa didn't stay at the Grove Park Inn for long. He began working as a photographer and joined Pelton Studios in Asheville in 1918. Throughout the 1920s, he produced newsreels, promotional pieces, postcards, and news photography for media publications, such as the Asheville Citizen Times and the New York Times. The town of Highlands, even back then, was a retreat for wealthy people, dating back to the times of slavery, and the town hired him in 1929 to take promotional photos for their tourism industry. So did the Asheville Chamber of Commerce. So did the Whites Only Park, Mount Mitchell. His heart, however, was in the mountains. He would spend weeks at a time, alone, or with his companion, Horace Keppert, in the Smokies. And Massa turned those excursions into a big mapping endeavor and survey of the land that would become Great Smoky Mountains Park.
4: Kept a map of the Smokies on his wall that he used for, to put pushpins in for every place he he had been in the Smokies. And people who saw that map just said it was just covered. You know, he had just <laughs> been been everywhere in that park.
13: He contributed to the committee that would later establish the Great Smoky Mountains National Park but the National Park Service never officially accepted him as a member. That's from Brent Martin's research he includes in the book. Massa spent a lot of time interviewing Cherokee people trying to understand the land. He also worked on mapping the southern route of the Appalachian Trail. This project took Massa across the southern highlands and Great Smokies, where he produced a catalog of photographs unlike any had seen before. George Massa was a pioneer of his time. He established himself as a successful photographer during Jim Crow. He found ways to participate in white only spaces when black people and Cherokee people were outright excluded. He surveyed Stone Mountain in Georgia at the same time the state was carving a Confederate monument into Stone Mountain. Unfortunately, we don't know what Massa knew about Jim Crow and neo-Confederacy, nor do we know how he felt navigating day-to-day in a racist landscape. The stock market crash of 1929 set off a cascade of misfortunes for Massa from debt to the death of his companion, Horace Keppert. In 1933, Massa died from tuberculosis.
4: People began using his photographs in private advertisements and, you know, they were just, his, his whole whole life's work was just kind of dissipating.
13: Much about George Massa's life, we still don't know. However, we get a glimpse of his life, his photography and his love for this landscape in Brent Martin's book. In the end, he hopes this book contributes to remembering the legacy of George Massa, of seeing his contributions as greater than the limits of a racist past
4: did live a unique life and a rare life. And then I hope that he serves as an inspiration for people.
13: I'm Anastasia Marie, BPR News.
0: More than 70,000 Ukrainians are living in the United States after fleeing the war in their homeland. The five members of the Czech family are among them. They escaped a Russian-controlled area of Ukraine and drove more than 2,000 miles to Germany. Now, the family hopes to start a new peaceful life. In Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. WITF's Gabriela Martinez has more.
12: It's a busy Saturday at the Czech family's new home. They just started renting an Efrita. The hardwood floor is covered in sheets and it smells like paint. Mikhail Czech is wearing a Mickey Mouse shirt. Before moving in, he and his wife decided to make the house brighter. That's why they've been up since seven in the morning, painting the rooms white. He and his brother and other family members are helping.
10: <laughs>
12: Amid all the activity, Mikhail and his wife, Lilia Chek found some time to sit down and share their story.
11: This is, this is a book. This is Donetsk book.
12: Mikhail had owned a construction supply store. He and his family lived in Hartzysk, about 90 miles from Mariupol, where some of the heaviest fighting is currently underway.
7: We have three children, one girl and two boys. Yeva is 17 years old, Damir is 14, and Rustam, our youngest, is 10.
12: The family has been in Lancaster County since June. A Slavic church in Ephrata helped them find this house.
7: (laughs) It's interesting that there are no fences between neighbors here. We used to have a tall fence, two meters high, so that you couldn't see over. Here, it's all open.
12: He says he's enjoying the central Pennsylvania summer landscape.
7: Very beautiful. I like how everything is green.
12: It is not the first time the Czech family has had to flee Hrcisk, They left when Russia invaded eastern Ukraine in 2014, but they later came back.
10: Practically
7: speaking, from 2014 through 2022, we lived in a constant state of war. The airstrikes were especially intense until 2016, and then they became fewer and fewer.
12: But when Russia invaded Ukraine earlier this year, they knew it was time to leave.
7: And then, in 2022, we finally decided to leave. We just couldn't live there anymore. It was impossible.
12: It became even more dangerous when Russian jets started showing up overhead.
7: We began hiding underground. It was very scary, especially when the planes flew over. We were frightened not only for our own sake, but for our children, because they were really scared. <laughs>
12: This is Lilia, Mikhail's wife. They would get scared and run to our room. Eventually, Mikhail arranged an escape for his family, a person he knew would lead them to the Russian border. They had one night to pack.
7: We went through woods, through fields, through all sorts of ravines, so as to avoid checkpoints. The main thing for us was to make it to the border.
12: Mikhail and his brother then drove more than 1,000 miles to the russian latvian border. Border guards held them up for 40 minutes, but let them go. Eventually, they made it to a relative's house in Germany.
7: We filled out an application for benefits so that we would have state support on which to live. We started learning the language and we figured we would stay in Europe.
12: They applied to get benefits and even started learning German, thinking they might stay in Europe. But then Mikhail's cousin, Konstantin Reznik, who lives in Lancaster County and is the mission's pastor at Bethany Slavic Church, encouraged them to apply for a Biden administration program called Uniting for Ukraine. It allows Ukrainian citizens to come to the U.S. for two years with the help of a private sponsor.
14: As soon as the opportunity came up... uh,
12: The application process was fast. It took Kresnik just under two weeks to become a sponsor.
14: I have never seen the federal government move this fast. We filed on Friday, got approval on Tuesday. And then after that, we just bought tickets.
12: Sponsors help the person or family during their stay.
14: You have to provide everything from housing to—they're not allowed to legally work uh, for about six months until their paperwork gets processed.
12: Priestnik's family came from eastern Ukraine to the United States, fleeing religious so, persecution and the Soviet Union in 1995. So he smiled, remembering his father and what he went through.
14: So I'm looking at this and thinking, my gosh, this was my dad when we came. And uh, <laughs> just I'm basically watching him repeat my dad's story. And I'm helping him to make my dad's story be a little better than what my dad's story was.
12: Konstantin says it was much more challenging when he came here about 30 years ago.
14: Barely anyone spoke English in our community back in 95. Now everyone speaks English. It's like everyone is an interpreter.
1: (laughs) Today is... What day is today? Tuesday. Tuesday. Tuesday, yes.
12: But the Czech family wants to learn. They go to ESL class twice a week at Bethany Slavic Church in Efrida. Before class, Mihail's son, Damir, talked about where he sees himself a year from now.
1: Year already...
12: Damir says he will be able to find friends in school and learn English. He'll know the community better and will be able to go on family walks in the park and ride his bike. To him, everything will be okay. <laughs> And for Damir's dad, Mikhail, he doesn't really know what comes next, but he wants to stay. At the moment, he hopes to get his work permit soon so he can support his family. Gabriela Martinez, WITF News, Ephrata, Lancaster County. Mm ¶¶
0: Lots of families live with furniture, silverware, and rugs, but we kind of take them for granted. We seldom think about who makes these items or where to turn when they need repaired. One man in Kingsport, Tennessee, has been building and repairing carpets and rugs for over 50 years. For Jerry Matron Sr., the business not only provides him with a livelihood, but also an outlet for expressing creativity and an opportunity for discovery. Folkways reporter Nicole Musgrave has the story.
6: In their two-room workshop in downtown Kingsport, Jerry Machin and his wife and business partner, Linda Machin, are picking out colors for a custom butterfly rug.
5: Is this, what is this? Mustard? Uh Uh-huh, mustard seed. Where are you going with the mustard seed? Uh, She just wanted it to pop on the corners. Like here?
6: Jerry designed the rug and created a template out of butcher paper. The future rug will be one big butterfly in a mix of pastel colors. As they work, Jerry tapes small pieces of yarn to the template to see how all the colors work together. uh,
5: Hold on to it. Thank you. Beautiful! God might hire us to make new butterflies.
6: The Matients have owned their business for over 50 years. They named it Agape Carpet and Rug Specialists of America.
5: Agape is a Greek word. It means God's unconditional love. I guess the reason why I can create and do the things that we do is His love for us and me loving exactly what I do.
6: Jerry's love for carpet started in the mid-60s. He was in his 20s and was working at a furniture store, creating custom draperies.
5: That was my first love. And then they needed help in carpet installation. So I fell in love with carpet.
6: Jerry learned the ins and outs of installing carpet while at the furniture store. But eventually, he struck out on his own. With every installation job he did, Jerry always saved pieces of scrap carpet in case his customers needed repair work done. After a while, he had so much scrap carpet that he rented out an entire house to store it all in. Linda was not very happy about this.
2: See, I didn't know about the house for a little while. That was interesting. He caused a little stir at the house.
5: My wife came in one day and said, get rid of it all. You got to get this place cleaned out.
6: But Jerry didn't want to just throw all the scraps away. He thought he could make use of them. One day, he saw a painting of a mountain scene and he got an idea. He decided to recreate the painting with scraps.
5: I said, I can do that in carpet." I've never built one before in my life, but in my mind, I've thought of it over and over again that I could build that.
6: Linda came home to find Jerry working in a frenzy on the kitchen floor.
2: I walk in from work, and my whole kitchen floor is covered with pieces, and he's gonna
6: put a picture together. And
2: I'm like, is it gonna be done before I have to start supper?
6: At this point, it was the 70s, So Jerry was working with pieces of shag carpet in vibrant hues of blues, oranges, reds, and pastel pinks. He hand-sewed all the pieces together from the back. And he was surprised by the outcome.
5: When I turned it over, I was amazed at how it looked. It was actually beautiful.
6: After creating that mountain scene, Jerry soon began sewing one-of-a-kind rugs and wall hangings for customers. He's created hundreds of designs, including horoscope signs, landscapes, animals, and logos. For Jerry, it's a thrill to bring an idea to life.
5: I love working with my hands. If you can build it in your mind, you can put your hands to it and you can put it together.
6: Over the years, the business has turned into a family affair. Along with Linda, Jerry works alongside his grandson and his oldest son, Jerry Jr., who goes by Joey. Today, in the back room of the workshop, Jerry watches over as Joey uses clippers to shave down the edge of a piece of carpet. Once the edge is straight and neat, Joey uses an air compressor to blow the tiny scraps out of his way. Finally, he sews on a strip of fringe to finish the edge.
5: And, voila! Nice and stitched through
6: here. Joey explains that along with installing carpet and creating custom designs, they also do a lot of restoration work.
14: The restoration is a big part of the business. A lot of people have rugs at homes that's been handed down from generation to generation, and bringing those back to life is, is uh, pretty amazing.
6: But the machins don't just clean and repair rugs that customers bring in. Sometimes, Jerry will find rugs that people have thrown away. He'll bring them into the shop and give them the new life he feels they deserve.
5: I can tell a real good drug, so when I find a good one, then, of course, I'll stop and pick it up. I like to solve it. I like to go and make it whole again. Instead of trashing it and throwing it away, then um, I like to repair it or uh, build it back.
6: Much like the custom design work, The restoration work is an opportunity for Jerry to put his creativity and problem-solving skills into motion.
5: Every one of them tells a story. It's not one rug that's especially hand-knotted and and tufted that that is the same. Every one is different. So you have to find the method that they use, the knot that they use, to even repair it. If not, it's going to show up. So it's a learning process every day.
6: Jerry's not the only one at the shop who finds creative fulfillment in the installation and restoration. Joey does too.
5: It's more artwork than
14: it is work. It's more creative. You know, you have a chance to expand your imagination on doing different things, you know, and it, it, it's
2: actually, it's a lot of fun.
6: And Linda feels similarly.
2: I didn't even know I had any creative abilities, but I was good with colors
6: and with shapes. Jerry continues to teach others about the art of carpet design and repair. In 2021, he was awarded a traditional arts apprenticeship grant from the Tennessee Folklife Program. Through the grant, he's mentoring Stacy Kimbler on how to create pictorial wall hangings using a tufting gun. Today at the shop, Stacy's working on a honeybee design. Stacy stands at a seven foot tall wooden frame that has a piece of white cloth stretched over it. He holds the tufting gun up to the cloth, and as he pulls the trigger, yarn shoots into the cloth at high speeds, creating the tufted design. Jerry stands nearby and gives advice on how close together the tufted rows should be.
5: Yeah, you can go over top of it, it won't hurt it, but just go and fill it in, in the middle. Tighter the better.
6: While Jerry values passing down his knowledge of carpet art to others, he acknowledges that there's always more he can learn, too.
5: If you have a gift, then the gift should keep on giving. I think it's very important to just keep what we have and learn from it. I don't know everything, and I'll never know everything, but I'm willing to learn each and every day.
6: And after all these years in the business, the possibility of discovering something new is what keeps Jerry going. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Kingsport, Tennessee.
0: That story comes to us from our Folkways Reporting Project, which covers arts and culture in the region. Nicole also made a short documentary video about Jerry Machen and his colorful carpet art. It's on our website, wvpublic.org. Now, Dolly Parton needs no introduction. But here goes anyway. She's an acclaimed singer-songwriter, actress, pulp culture icon, advocate for children, and noted philanthropist. The country music legend visited Charleston recently to celebrate West Virginia's full 55-county participation in Dolly Parton's Imagination Library. That's an early childhood literacy program she started in 1995 from her home in Sevier County, Tennessee. Parton's goal was simply to put books in the hands of children and each month Imagination Library provides a free book to participating children aged birth to five. The program has grown far beyond Tennessee's borders. It now sends books to children all over the world. To date, West Virginia children have received 3.7 million books, at no charge to their families. Dolly Parton recently spoke with WVPB executive producer Suzanne Higgins about her global reading program and its expansion in West Virginia.
8: Dolly Parton, welcome to West Virginia on what is now uh, the Dolly Parton Imagination Library Day.
1: Well, to have a day named after our Imagination Library is a wonderful thing. And I'm always glad to be in West Virginia. Everybody's been good to me through the years. Now, the Imagination
8: Library is, of course, your early childhood uh, literacy program that you started almost 30 years ago. It has spread from your original, your home county to really a worldwide program. For you to see a state like West Virginia, small, rural, certainly with challenges of poverty throughout our state, to see West Virginia embrace your program, the Imagination Library, really invest and partner with your foundation. It must be very gratifying in terms of what you set out to do so many years ago.
1: Well, it is very gratifying and I'm very touched by it. And the people of West Virginia are just like the people in my home, state of Tennessee and the way we grew up, knowing how hard times could be. But the Imagination Library is for all children, not just children that are having hard times. But children, I think really their little minds are open to learning things. And I think if we can get books in their hands, teach them to read, you know, when they're young, in their most impressionable years, I think that's always a wonderful thing. Tell us a little bit about
8: how the program works. Uh, A family member, registers a a child, hopefully a a newborn, so they can go through the the program until age five. What can that family expect?
1: Well, first of all, people do need to know that. A lot of people don't understand that there's no money involved for them. All the parents have to do is to register the child. And that little child gets a book a month, and it comes in the mail with their own little name on it. So as soon as they get big enough to know they're getting this book, they run to that mailbox, and they bring it in and have someone else to sit down and and read with them, which is great. It's kind of a great way to bring families together too, whether it's a parent or a grandparent or brother or sister. But it's a wonderful thing just to register and get that little kid going, and it'll learn to love the books, the smell of books, the touch of books, and just, you know, it just really opens their little minds to possibilities. Talk about the inspiration for the Imagination Library. Well, the way I started the Imagination Library was back in my home area of Sevier County, Tennessee. My dad, like so many there, like so many here in West Virginia, they were hard-working people, living on farms, and we, you know, they didn't have, uh, they had a bunch of kids, and the schoolhouses were miles away, and most of them didn't get a chance to go to school, and they couldn't learn. They didn't learn to read and write. My own father, that's who I started the program for. And my dad was kind of, he was smart, so smart, and just knew how to do everything, but he just could not read and write, and he felt he was too old to to learn. So I thought, I need to do something to lift that burden off of him, because he's such a good daddy, and such a good man, and so smart. And so I said, Daddy, why don't we start a program, you know, where we give books to children from the time they're born until they start school, and that way they can learn to read in their young years. And so we started out thinking, well, maybe it would go a few counties over. The next thing you know, the governor At that time, Phil Bredesen took it all over the state and it went into Canada and now we're basically all over the world because my sweet daddy and me uh, thought up the idea to get on out there and do something and my dad took great pride in that. The books have messages. Talk about, we we understand that the first book Every
8: Child Receives is a favorite childhood book of yours.
1: Well, it's a favorite childhood book, period. And it was a a childhood book of mine. But I still love that little book today. I even wrote a song for a children's uh, album that I did that kind of was based on things that we put through the Imagination Library, different books that we had. I wrote songs about, and I wrote a little song about the little engine that could because that's really the the the, the one that we start the program out with, as you mentioned. And so it just really shows children, it just builds their confidence if they're shy or they're afraid and they think they can't do it. And so uh, it's about, I can, I think I can, I think I can, I know I can, I will. And so I've always kind of likened my life to that little engine and I often say that I'm, I'm proof of that. I'm a little engine that did. So I mean, I kept dreaming, I kept pushing and I still do to this day, because whatever the mountain is, I'm going to get up there and I'm going to climb it until I can see what's on the other side, so but we love we you know we love knowing that little book is in there and the little song I wrote is, was kind of about that you know just be you you know it's like woo 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 I can do it so can you woo 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 I believe in you so the little song's called I Believe in You but it, it takes all the little pieces out of that little book to kind of you know give it a little springboard for what the message is in the song which is very much what it is in the book that you can do it. We spoke a, a little bit about your father. I like you to
8: uh, talk a little bit about your mother. You are leaving something with West Virginia today that ties back directly to your mother.
1: I am. My mom and dad were both very important to all of us. They had that house full of kids. Mom and daddy had 12 kids six girls and six boys and so they kept the family together mama kind of was that thread if you'll pardon the expression that sewed us all together kept us all together and the little book that i'm uh, that's also one of the books that's in the imagination library is the story of my little coat of many colors because it touches on this acceptance and it's about bullying also that kind of an idea but to show that people are different and it's okay to be different You can't persecute someone just because they're different. You know, we're all just part of that quilt. We're the fabric, you know, of of God's world, you know. And so we kind of have to sew all those little pieces and know that they're all beautiful in that quilt of life. So Mama made my little coat. Of many colors and told me the story of Joseph, you know, from the Bible about that just to make me proud of it. But Mama was wonderful in that way. Daddy had his job, Mama had hers, and they worked together to kind of keep that family going. And if you're lucky enough to have good parents, that's that's a wonderful gift, truly.
8: As we wrap up here, as you're about to take the stage, any final thoughts about uh, the Imagination Library program here and your visit to West Virginia.
1: I just appreciate everybody that's taken such an interest and in working so hard and believing in it and loving what they're doing. I met all the people when we were doing a little meet and greet. You know, before we go on to do the show. But I could tell they, they were taking great pride in it. And I took great pride in feeling that, knowing that they really believe in this like I believe in it. So I just really appreciate it. And I just want to say, keep it up, and we'll be supporting you, supporting us, supporting them. So it's all about the kids anyway. Dolly Parton, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Nice to see you.
9: I just couldn't wait to wear it and mama blessed it with a kiss. My coat of many colors that my mama made for me.
0: Made only from bread. Last year, Inside Appalachia did an entire episode on children's books, including one of my all-time favorite interviews with Cynthia Ryland, author of When I Was Young in the Mountains. We'll link that on our show page at wvpublic.org. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dr. Turtle, Aaron Copeland, Zach Byrd, and Dolly Parton. Bill Lynch is our producer. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at in Appalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Or leave us a message at West Virginia Public Broadcasting on Facebook. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.
4: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.